Well, you may have uh, noticed that today our Advent theme continues in a sense. Uh, this is sort of an epilogue or the, the after effect of our series in the, the wonders of His love. And so today as we consider the wonder of inclusion, uh, it's fitting that we just kind of look back over the last four weeks. And today we're, go- we're going to kind of look at what does it mean? Since these things are true, as we've experienced the wonder of, of who God is uh, and how He pours out His love toward us in ways that are not necessary to Him, but that He chooses, that He desires out of His own love for us. When we see that, then what? What does it mean in a practical sense for us now, moving forward, And that's what we're going to see today. The first week of Advent, we considered the core reality that God created all things, that He might be glorified by His overflowing love. Then we considered the the wonder of revelation, that God makes Himself known to display His glory in His relationship to us. Then as we talked about the wonder of the incarnation, it started feeling a little more Christmassy, if you will. And we saw that God displayed His glorious love for His people by becoming one of us. Last week, we considered the wonder of redemption. That the fullness of God's love and justice are displayed in Christ, born to save us from our sins. I hope you all had a Merry Christmas. I hope you're ready for a wonderful new year. But if we're honest, most of us have parts of the Advent story that we'd rather leave out parts that we don't really like to read or talk about not at our family gatherings anyway that's that's the comfortable place that's the happy place that's the joyful celebratory place nonetheless we need them we need the dark and hard parts as well as the joyful celebratory wonderful parts today's text is one of those stories It's the ugly part of Matthew's nativity narrative. It's the part we'd rather leave out and not talk about. But the Lord has included it in His Word because without it, we could easily miss the glory and awesome wonder of what He has done for us. So I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter 1. We'll start with verse 18. I'm sorry, I said, well, I've got, I've got last week's written down, or, yeah. What we want is Matthew chapter 2. My apologies. But if you went to Matthew 1, you're not that far away, right? So as we, uh, as we get here to Matthew chapter 1, as we have been doing, just to remind us that this is God's Word that we are reading, let's stand, if you're able, out of reverence for God's Word. I'll begin with verse 1. This is the Word of God. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. 
and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi uh, secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. <clears throat> when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. In accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping, in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. This is the word of God read in your hearing. Please receive it in faith. Father God, as we open your word today, we read of this horrible story. And our hearts don't want to hear it. Our minds don't want to think of it. Father, I pray that you would use it to plow up our fallow ground that we might receive from you the seed that you want to plant in us to bear fruit, fruit for your glory, fruit of the gospel. Speak to us through your word today, Lord. Open it, open our eyes, open our hearts, and change us by it. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, this <clears throat> horrible account of what is sometimes called the slaughter of the innocents is a painful and shopping, shocking disruption to our warm, happy, comfortable Christmas celebrations. Yet, it is exactly why the Advent, the coming of Christ, was so necessary. 
and why a second advent is so triumphantly hope-giving. It addresses the disgusting, disgusting, and horrifying reality and inevitable consequences of our rejection of God's perfect, absolute, loving, and life-giving rule in our lives. By way of contrast, it also points us to another passage we'll look at today, Ephesians 2, where we'll see the sharp contrast between the destructive effects of sin and the restorative effects of our redemption in Christ. Before we continue, let's focus our minds on where we're going with our core reality. God's unspeakable love overcame our sin to bring us into His forever family. I'll read it again. You've got it in front of you. God's unspeakable love overcame our sin to bring us into His forever family. Now, as we've been walking through this Advent season and, and seeing these various uh, wonders in the Scripture, one thing has been abundantly clear. God loves us in a way that is unfathomable. And it should, if we're actually encountering it, fill us with an awe, fill us with a wonder, an amazement, because God did these things he didn't have to do. He didn't need to create us. He didn't need to reveal himself to us. He certainly didn't need to become one of us, and he didn't need to redeem us out of our rebellion, but he did all of these things. His unspeakable love not only overcame our sin, but it overcame our sin specifically to bring us into His forever family. A sense of true belongingness that doesn't end when we leave this planet. And it doesn't begin after we leave this planet. It starts now and lasts forever. Well, as we uh, are going through this, I'm just going to try to stay on point as best I can so that we can uh, go here, but uh, I get a little excited, especially the Sunday after Christmas. I'm all, I'm all you know, uh, hopped up on, on desserts and, and everything else, and I'm excited because we just spent a month focusing on the goodness of our God in the Advent, and Christmas is my favorite time of year. We sing the songs, we see the lights, the family gets together, and, and you know, everybody's having fun, and in our family, it's somewhat deafening, amen, right? It's kind of a loud family, right? And we get together, and we talk over one another, and we complain about it, even as we're doing it, and you're like, oh, I wish everybody would be a little quieter while I get louder to make sure that I get heard. But there's a, a jointness, a togetherness in it that's beautiful. It's wonderful. And if that's all it is, it's ultimately empty. And yet our hearts continue to cry out for it. We want Christmas. One of my favorite Christmas songs. Now, how many of you are Elvis Presley fans out there? Anybody? Maybe I'm, maybe I'm older than I thought. Anyway, uh, one of my, my favorite songs uh, from Elvis is uh, If Every Day Were Like Christmas. Why can't every day be like Christmas? Uh, you know, why can't that feeling go on endlessly if every day could be just like christmas what a wonderful world that would be 
Why? Because our hearts are craving something. In Christmas, in the Advent, in the celebration of Jesus coming, in this proclamation of good news and peace on earth, there's a sense of connectedness, of significance, of mattering to God. That He actually stepped into time and space. He didn't just you know, wind up the watch and let it go and, and just sit back and watch us implode. He actually got dirty. He came to us. And we long, all year long, we, 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 we hunger, we thirst for a sense of peace and unity and significance. And we find that, even if it's only for a moment, in these holiday celebrations. And yet we recognize for far too many the holidays are a painful, awkward, hard, abrasive time. Sometimes, let's be honest, getting together with family is more work than joy. Sometimes, in some families, Getting together is an unthinkable thing because we have rifts that somewhere inside us we want to repair and yet there's another part of us, often a bigger part of us, that doesn't. I can't forgive them for that. Or I'm too ashamed of what I've done and I know they can't forgive me. And when we live in that space, then the holidays can just be a knife in the heart. Very often we're mourning the separation from loved ones. Those that we spent beautiful Christmases with in the past and now we no longer can. I did two funeral services right in the middle of this Advent season for people that I didn't know personally. Some of you did. Their families are grieving. Some of you are grieving. And the worst grief of all is when you grieve over a relationship that became estranged and can no longer be repaired. Reconciliation is not an option. I can forgive, perhaps, but I, it's too late now. I can't fix it because they're gone. That's not what Christmas is for. But it is our reality. Before we start on, <clears throat> on working through this text and the points, I just want us to take a, just a heartbeat or two and acknowledge that we live in a fallen world. A world of sin and injustice, of degradation and division and alienation. If we don't acknowledge that, if we don't recognize that the Christmas story isn't just angels in a pasture on a hillside, it's also Rachel weeping for her children because they are no more. 
then we will be out of touch with reality and we can't really engage the living God. Not when we pursue a fantasy religion. A religion that wants to deal with life as we wish it were rather than as it is. That's not what God's called us to. We need to walk into every day with our eyes wide open so that we can have our hearts and hands wide open to receive what He wants to give and that we might give it out to others. Okay, so without further ado, let's start working through this. God's unspeakable love overcame our sin to bring us into His forever family. Excuse me. First, notice this. God created us for good and glorious relationship with Him. God created us for good and glorious relationship with Him. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here since we've explored this point to some some extent each of the past four weeks. But we do need to remind ourselves of this truth as we consider everything else today. God created all things that He might be glorified by His overflowing love. And He makes Himself known to display His glory in His relationship to us. So in the wonders of creation and revelation, we see that God didn't need to create us in order to add anything to His glory or satisfy some lack in Himself. But He did so out of the overflow of His loving and creative nature. He did so out of the overflow of His loving and creative nature, that He might display His eternal glory by pouring out His love on us. God is already glorious, right? God's glory is not diminished when we fail to glorify Him. It's reality. Our glorifying Him is simply reflecting what is already reality. So He didn't need us, and yet He chose to create us so that He might display His already eternal glory by pouring out the love that overflows from His nature onto His created beings. And He created us specifically in His image that He might do that in a unique way that He does not do with the rest of creation. As God is the source and giver of all life and goodness, it is for our absolute and consummate good that He created us for relationship with Him. It's For His glory, to be sure, but God's glory is our good. And to be connected with the giver of life, to be connected with the glorious one, to be connected with the all good, is only good for us. It is the fullness of goodness. Unfortunately, our first parents did what you and I do every day. They rejected God's perfect, absolute, loving, and life-giving rule in their lives by choosing to pursue their own ends in rebellion against His command. Which leads us to our second point. Not only did God create us for good and glorious relationship with Him, but sin alienates us from God and from each other. Sin alienates us from God and from each other. Now, if you've been with us at all, you know that God created us to be with Him and that 
our sins separate us from God. And you're familiar probably with Genesis 3. I'm going to ask you to turn there to, to the book of Genesis at the very beginning of your Bible. And you know the story of Adam and Eve in the garden and they are in this perfect environment without sin and then they choose to listen to some really, really fatally bad advice. But as we read this today, I want you to consider the immediate effects of sin as we read it. Genesis chapter 3, starting with verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Notice the twist from what God had said. God had said not to eat from one tree in the garden. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Notice again, as she's trying to come back from the lie Satan is telling, she still adds to God's command. She goes above the line of what his word actually said. He said, don't eat it. She said, don't touch it. Verse 4, you'll not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. Sarcasm added. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Let me stop before we get to verse 6 and just point out, this is the temptation that we all face. All the time, in every moment, not with the fruit of a tree, but with the fruit of our lives. We get the temptation to begin to think that there's a better plan. God said this, but we're, you know, we're enlightened people. We're smart. We're scientific. We're philosophical. We can see things that these old buffoons couldn't see. And so God was writing the scriptures in a way that basically knuckleheads could understand but we're so much smarter now we do the exact same thing that they did we hear that temptation that voice that says did god really say that you know god's holding back from you there's a better plan there's a better way you can have a shortcut that that was good in the old days but now we know better and we can We can do better than that. Just be a little more accepting of new ways of thinking. All right. Continuing with verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. 
It's easy for me to want to preach this passage on the sin and the temptation. But we want to notice today the effects. Then the eyes of both of them were open. Satan was partially right. The best lie has a little truth. And they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me. <laughs> That's a good call, Adam. Blame God. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Boy, you know, I, I can be snarky talking about this with Adam, but don't we do that all the time? I was just born this way. God made me this way. I can't help it. Or... As Flip Wilson used to say, the devil made me do it. We want to blame others, even the Lord. Then the Lord, verse 13, said to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. It's not my fault. I was tricked into it. So the Lord God said to the serpent, verse 14, because you've done this, just a little side note that I just thought about has nothing to do with the sermon. It just occurs to me. You realize the serpent, the devil, the only one who's not talking back to God in this? He knows better. How bad is it that we're not as wise as the deceiver? How bad is it that you and I We'll talk back to God, try to make excuses, try to cover up and hide. The devil knows better. He's in rebellion, for sure. But he doesn't try to deny the reality of God. All right, moving on. Because you have done this, verse 14, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you. Don't misunderstand. Well, it's not bad for listening to his wife. It's bad for listening to his wife this way. Don't, don't be led astray. Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Man, I want to preach that. I'm going to keep moving. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. 
Verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to teach, uh, to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden uh, of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Notice the effect here of sin. It alienates us from God and from each other. First we see the rejection and alienation uh, from God. The man and the woman reject God's rule in their lives and it alienates them from Him. The disobedience, clearly. The hiding, the covering. Before this they were naked and unashamed. It doesn't say they were naked and stupid. It doesn't say they were naked and unaware. They knew they didn't have clothes. It didn't matter. They were naked unto one another. They were naked before the face of God. They had no shame, nothing to cover, nothing to hide. Fully exposed in every meaningful way. Sin, as they rejected God's rule, cut them off brought alienation from God so that when God showed up, that was the last thing in the world they wanted. They wanted to run. Think back to when you were a kid. When you were left alone, this is only for Gen Xers, kids today don't understand this, but if you were a Gen X or a boomer, you know you were left alone plenty and given a task list, right? Here's your chore list. Get this done while I'm at the store or wherever I'm at. I'm going over to Grandma's. When I come back, this is what I expect to get done. When you have done well, and you've done everything on that chore list, and, and you know, you've, you've got everything right, and you hear Mom and Dad come in the driveway, there's a little bit of excitement, right? Because they're going to be proud of me. What happens when, not that my brother and sister and I know anything about this, but what happens when you've been goofing off fooling around, didn't get the list done, and you hear them come in the driveway. Or you see dad's headlights from the farm up the street coming down, and you haven't milked the cows yet. Not that any of that ever happened. But now the first thing you think is, oh, shoot. Oh, I can't believe it. You wish you could cover and hide, and you can't. So you have to cover up your deeds and try to fake it, try to get through. Think of your excuses. It alienates you from mom and dad because you've disobeyed. That's what happens every time we sin. It cuts us off, not just in a grand eternal sense, but it cuts off our fellowship. Now understand this. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have been born again by the Spirit of God, by receiving Jesus Christ as your Savior and therefore also your Lord, you have recognized that He is the King of all kings and you live for Him. If that's true of you, then you can never, never be cut off from Him again in a great eternal sense. Somebody say amen. You cannot be lost once you've been saved. However, and your experience will bear this out. Your fellowship can be cut off pretty easily, right? When I didn't do the chores I was supposed to do, I was no less my father's son. I just didn't want to see him coming down the road. If you're in Christ, 
and you're not living an obedient life, you're living your life instead of his life, then the thought of him showing up might be scary, might be daunting. At the very least, you're not filled with the excitement of being face to face with him. It's an alienation that comes from sin. It alienates us from God. But notice also what we just saw in, in Genesis 3. The effect is that it also alienates us from each other. They hide from God. And then the alienation from each other starts with the shaming and blaming. Well, God, it, it was her fault. She did it. Well, who are you pointing at, Adam? You don't have a brain? You couldn't eat it yourself? Come on. Now, this perfect naked before one another and unashamed now that's broken they're no longer connected in intimate fellowship with god and the intimate fellowship with each other is also disruptive when you do things you're ashamed of the natural reaction is to try to hide when you do things that you're ashamed of the natural reaction is to deflect to try to blame someone else to point out someone else's sin. I don't want to deal with my sin. Therefore, I'm going to point out what a wretch you are. Totally unrelated. You are a wretch, and so am I. But if I can get the attention on you, if I can act mad at you, well, that takes the attention away from me. Alienation from God and from each other. Go back to Matthew 2 for a minute, where we were looking at, at the Magi. You know the story, but look at it. Look at what happens there. In the middle of this awesome story, right? we've got the, the, the birth of Jesus Christ pre predicted. Then from here, from the end of Matthew 1, timeline-wise, you can jump over to Luke, Luke 2 and see the nativity scene play out. It's interesting to me that so often in our, in our creches, in our nativity scenes that we have in our homes, we'll, or, or even in our Hollywood movies, we'll have the, the wise men, the magi, showing up at the manger. That's not actually in any way accurate. They're coming much later, anywhere from six months to two years later. There's a reason Herod says, you know, I'm going to kill all the boys under two years old. In that window, when they're in Bethlehem, not hanging out, you know, putting the kid in a feed trough, but the child now is growing their home, wherever home is here in Bethlehem, and these guys come. They're not at the manger, but they come to celebrate the birth of the king. This is what everything has been building toward. They've been watching it, and they come. This is a happy moment. They're excited, but Herod's not. They come to King Herod, and they ask the question when they come to Jerusalem, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw a star in the east and have come to worship him. Notice in verse 3 what happens. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. So he calls them together, and he finds out what the prophet has written. Verse 6, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Judah was the ruling tribe of Israel. 
And this ruler would come. Herod called the Magi in verse 7. And he found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. Notice he calls them secretly. Go and make a careful search for the child. Herod doesn't want anybody else to know what's going on. Go and make a search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Worship is not what Herod had in mind. Why was he so disturbed? Because that's what sin does. It alienates us from God and from each other. It makes us want to protect our own thing. It makes us covetous. It makes us prideful. And anything that can threaten my little kingdom must be shut down. So they escaped to Egypt because the Lord had warned them. Verse 16, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. Sin will often fuel our fury. Things don't go our way our scheme doesn't work things go the way they should go but not the way we want them to go and we are enraged and he gave orders continuing in verse 16 to kill all the boys in bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the magi then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This is precisely what sin always inevitably does. It divides, it alienates. We see this kind of interpersonal disruption in every list of sinful behaviors and attitudes in some form. Whenever we see a list of sinful things in the New Testament, it includes in there something about broken relationships and hostility and anger and jealousy and so on. This is why Jesus says the things He does equating internal and external sin. If you're still in Matthew, turn a couple of pages to Matthew chapter 5. You may recognize this as the Sermon on the Mount. And here in Matthew chapter 5, as, as Jesus is preaching, He's not giving us some new standard. He's clarifying what the law has always meant. He's not saying this is the, this is the set of values you're to live by because if you do this, then everything's going to be great. He's pointing out, this has always been God's expectation, but it goes farther than you thought. It's not just keeping your hands clean, it's keeping your heart clean. It's not just avoiding doing the bad thing, it's choosing not to love the bad thing. It's choosing to love God's way more than your own way. Take a look at what he says uh, verse 20 and following for i tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the pharisees and the teachers of the law you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven so he's 
pointing out the Pharisees, those who are the most pious, the most known for their outward righteousness, they're not good enough. It's got to be more than just the doing. It has to be an internal righteousness. He continues, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Racha, that was a, a, a particular epithet that was forbidden, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, is in danger of the fire of hell. It's not just your mouth, it's your heart. Jump down to verse 27. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already already committed adultery with her in his heart. The point is, it's not just avoiding the situation, it's the matter that you want the situation. That you look at her with that intent in your heart is already a violation. You've already sinned before God. And he continues. Excuse me. You got to deal with this in an extreme way. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to be to to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. He's making it very clear. He's not calling for self mutilation. Get that garbage out of your mind. What he's saying is sin needs to be dealt with in extremis. You need to take harsh action to deal with whatever it is. Is it your computer? Get rid of your computer. Can't handle having a smartphone? Get rid of your smartphone. Is it your job is keeping you from fellowshipping with with the body of Christ? Then get a different job. Figure it out because you've got to be right with God more than you've got to be right in this world. And if you lose everything here but gain eternity, you win. And if you gain everything here but lose eternity, you lose. That's what he's saying. And he continues, verse 31, It's been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. That was a provision that was allowed in Moses' law to be able to protect the abandoned and the wronged. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who murders the who marries, sorry, wrong, wrong verse, who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard it said to the people long ago, don't break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven for it's God's throne or by the earth for it's his footstool or by Jerusalem for it's the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, for you can't make even one hair black or white. Simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. And he continues like this throughout the rest of the sermon. The point is not never make promises. Don't put your hand on a Bible and swear in court. That's not the point. His point is the inside has to match the outside so that we cannot be separated This internal cohesion to our external behavior is imperative. And if we don't get the inside right, 
the outside will always inevitably result in sinful behaviors and attitudes toward other people. And it doesn't just alienate us from God, as if that could be a just, but it also alienates us from those around us. Galatians 5, verses 1 to 26 is an example of how very different the alienating effects of living according to the sinful flesh is from from, uh, living the life-giving effects of the Holy Spirit of God who dwells in all who have been born again. Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to start with verse uh, 16. Paul writes to the church of Galatia, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under law. It's not that you aren't required to obey God. It's that the Spirit is guiding you. You don't have to worry about checklists because you're walking with Daddy. Verse 19, the acts of the sinful nature. Now notice, notice this not exhaustive, but an exemplary list of sinful behaviors. What it means to walk according to our natural flesh, our sinful flesh. What does it look like? And he says they're obvious. And as we see this list, notice there's a lot of alienation, division, injustice that takes place here. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. Idolatry and witchcraft. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not, will not, will not inherit the kingdom of God. What Paul is pointing out here is all of these things, and and we can come up with myriad more. All of these things are what happens when we miss what Jesus said as far as the internal matching the external. If I try to do all the right things on the outside, I'm the best religious person, the most pious outwardly person that you can possibly see. But my heart's not right. I'm going to end up here. I'm going to end up in this sinful nature, flesh-oriented list. But... When my inner person, not just what I do, but what I want to do, is following the Spirit, he says in verse 22, and following the fruit of the Spirit, what grows from the Spirit being within us is, notice the different relational aspects of this. You've heard this list a hundred times. Think of it specifically in terms of relationship versus alienation. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there's no law. Why would you need a law against these things? That's kind of the point. We need law to bind back our flesh when we do our thing. When we do God's thing, we're not under law. 
Because we're living above the law. We're living beyond the law. We're living from God within us. Our desire is for what pleases Him. And it is a good and glorious relationship. Verse 25, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. See the correlation between sin and how we end up, in effect, dealing with others. Sin alienates us from God and from each other. Okay, I'm gonna, I wanted to make sure that, that we spend a little extra time on that. I won't spend as much time on these next points. Partly because we've seen them. I say that, I probably lied. Anyway, um, notice Christ reconciled us to God perfectly at the cross. Christ reconciled us to God perfectly at the cross. And when I say perfectly, I mean perfectly. He did all that can be done. There is nothing left. Perfectly in the sense of completely. We are utterly, completely reconciled to God through Christ and Christ alone. Not Christ, and now I have the opportunity to start fresh and, and I'm gonna, you know, I've got a clean slate and now I build up from there. Right? There are, are there are Christian sects or, or denominations who teach that. That there is a certain expiation of our previous sins. We eliminate original sin through our baptism or, or whatever means you, you plug in there, but uh, most commonly through baptism. And that wipes away our original sin, what we inherit. And now we have a clean slate and we can begin to climb the ladder. And we can begin to live right. And as long as we do that, then God will accept us. We'll see in just a few moments here It's not about that. It's never been about that. Christ died as a substitute for us. Romans 3, 26. 3, 23, 24, 25, 26. Jesus, because we had all sin, became the sacrifice of atonement, the propitiation for us. He is the sacrifice that takes it all away. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he who knew no sin, Jesus didn't have any sin, but he became sin for us on the cross so that we might become God's righteousness. In Romans 5 and 6, we see the picture that we are united to Christ. And just as, Romans 4 points this out, I'm jumping all over Romans, Just as Abraham believed God's promises and that was credited to him as righteousness, Abraham was not a righteous man on his own. But he received credit for righteousness because he believed God. In the same way, when we've been united to Christ, His righteousness has been credited to our account. And our sin, all of it, every little bit of it, is credited to His account. So Christ, in doing what He did, becoming one of us, living a sinless life, and taking our sin on the cross, reconciled us to God perfectly, completely at the cross, once and for all. I mentioned earlier that the horrors of Matthew 2 point us <clears throat> excuse me, toward Ephesians 2 and the restorative effects 
of our redemption in Christ. I'd invite you to turn there if you're still in Galatians. It's just the next page or two. We're going to focus our attention on verses 11 and following. But let's start with verse 1 of Ephesians 2. Because the first half of the chapter is how we get to the second half, right? Makes sense, doesn't it? Paul spent Ephesians 1, the whole first chapter, talking about the glorious riches of God's grace in adopting us, choosing us, making us His his children, giving us the full standing of the only begotten Son of God, all by His grace. And that He did this even before He created the world. But sin separated us, and that's where we find ourselves in chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Notice this. As for you, he writes, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. He's writing to believers. If he were writing only to non-believers, he would say, you are dead. But because they have received Christ and been made right, they were dead. And he's pointing out to them, pointing out to you and me, that all of us are in the same boat. Every single one of us. Dead. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the, <coughs> excuse me, of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the world. Let me try this again. <coughs> the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Verse 3. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Now it starts to get good, verse 4. But because of His great love for us, the wonders of His love, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God not by works, so that no one can boast. For we, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, <clears throat> that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time, You were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Stop for a second. The promises of God, the covenant of God, came through His chosen people Israel. The, The offer was to all the world, but it came through Israel. The problem is all of us outside of Israel who did not have the law, did not have the covenant with God, we were outside of that relationship. The covenant of God, the law of God, always from the very beginning pointed forward to the Christ, the serpent crusher, the one who would crush the serpent's head. That was what the ancients hoped in. 
Now, we who are outside and living according to our own means, according to our own wisdom, and not following God's law, not hoping in Christ, we're just dead and outside of Him. And we don't have that relationship. We're foreigners, excluded from citizenship among God's people, and therefore without hope, because we are without God. Okay, verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. That perfect reconciliation. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. Sin alienates, brings hostility. Christ reconciles through the cross, putting to death that hostility. Verse 17, He came and preached peace to you who were far away, Gentiles. Peace to those who were near, Israel. For through Him, We both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Here's our memory verse for today in verse 19. Consequently, you you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus Himself as the chief cornerstone. In Him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. Everything else that we see here comes from the principles that we see in this passage. Christ reconciled us to God perfectly at the cross, and because He reconciled us, that's the wonder of redemption. He is building us into something better. God's unspeakable love overcame our sin to bring us into His forever family. Notice this next point. Because of all that, being united to Christ unites us to others in Christ. All right, Being united to Christ unites us to others in Christ. Let me change the emphasis on these syllables. Being united to Christ unites us in Christ, right? So if I'm united to Him, if I'm joined to Him, if I'm part of Him, and you're joined to Him, and you're part of Him, then we're all one together. We're on the same team. We're part of the body. If I graft a, uh, a branch into a tree, it's no longer separate from the tree. It grows as part of that tree. It's joined to it, and it's joined to all the other branches on that tree. In the same way, notice the dynamic of citizenship and family. Being united to Him unites us to each other. 
Citizenship family are the way that, that Paul describes it here in Ephesians 2. Nations, families have a very specific dynamic. These are people united to one another despite any variety of differences through a conscious common bond. Right? They're, they're united to one another despite any variety of differences through a conscious common bond. Nations have borders. Nations have, uh, have an identification system. You know that nation to which you belong. Families have, have locks on the doors, right? You know who belongs and who doesn't. There's a definition of who is in my household. There's a definition of what it means to be a citizen. In the same way, when we are united to Christ, we are united to one another. You can't be in my household and be united to me and not be united to my wife. We are one. That's how it works. When you come into the United States of America or any other sovereign nation, the dynamic is the same. You can be here as a guest, but to be a citizen has a very specific meaning. Notice our next point. God's gift of belonging gives us a home, a family, and a purpose. God's gift of belonging gives us a home, a family, and a purpose. Being united to Christ unites us to others in Christ. And being in Christ and in one another because of Christ, we have these realities. We have a home, a place to belong, a secure place. Both heaven and the church. He's building a mansion for you if you are in Christ. And one day we will go home. But right now, He is building us into a home. Isn't that basically what we just read? We are being built together. Being built together to rise up as a holy temple. Verse 21 of Ephesians 2. In Him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him you too are being built together, you, the church, you believers, to become a dwelling, a house in which God lives by His Spirit. Because we belong to Him, He has given us a home, a place to belong. He's also given us a family, a people to love. Being a part of my home is one thing. But I don't just love the home. I don't just love the group. I love my wife, my children. I love my grandchildren, my brother, my sister, my nieces, my nephews. They belong to me, and I belong to them. It's not just a place to belong. It's also a people to love, both now and forever. Being united to Christ unites us to Christ's people, and that gives us a forever family. That starts now. We have this family, this joining together here. That's why we gather on Sundays. That's why we're commanded, actually, to gather, to not forsake gathering together, assembling ourselves, where we encourage one another, where we build one another up, we lift one another up. Most of the New Testament, 
focuses on that kind of thing. How do we, in the church, do life together as a reflection of Christ through relationships? It involves a place to belong, a people to love, but it also gives us a purpose, a reason to live with joy and significance. If you're not clear on that, just commit yourself in this next uh, period of time in the new year. You're not, maybe you want to start a, a, a Bible study plan. You're not sure how to do it. Take a look. If you're, already a, if you're not a believer and you're wrestling with this, I would encourage you to take a look at the book of John. Understand what Jesus did, who he claimed to be, so that you can believe and have life. But if you are a believer and you want to actually get a hold of what, is this, what does this life together look like, this place to belong, people to love, reason to live, what does this look like? Read the book of Acts. Go through it. See what happens when people actually believe, not just have religious set of things that they believe, but they actually believe that Jesus Christ is God, made flesh, crucified on a cross for my sin, raised up from the dead, and alive today. When they actually believe that and are filled with God's Holy Spirit, it changes them. And they go from a scared group of people just trying to get by, trying to figure out how to get through the day, how to deal with an overreaching government, how to deal with nagging in-laws, how to deal with paying bills, how to deal with disobedient children, all of the things that you and I deal with all the time. But they stop grubbing around with that stuff. They're not turkeys grubbing in the ground. They start to soar with the eagles. They start to see beyond because they've picked up the purpose for which God created them, which is now handed to them in Christ because of this reconciliation with God. They have a reason to live that's so much bigger than the everyday mundane stuff. They still have to do all those other things, but now those things are connected to how can I glorify God? How can I carry out my mission? Because He's actually given me a mission to love God, to love people, to make disciples so that other people can love God and love people and make disciples so that they don't die and go to hell. So that they can participate in this same joy that we see them experience in the book of Acts. We see it throughout the New Testament. We see it actually in the book of Revelation. When the judgments come down and the evil, the evil world is dealt with, those who are wicked are destroyed, and the judgments of God come. But what we see over and over is the rejoicing of the saints. Worshiping God, reveling in Him, because the purpose is fulfilled. God's gift of belonging gives us a home, a family, and a purpose. That's the wonder of inclusion. It's not just that God gave us life and gave us a relationship with Him, allowed us to know Him as His subjects. It's not simply that, that He has, has shown us His character so that we can serve Him as slaves. I would contend that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. It's not simply that He stepped into our lives so we could touch Him and feel Him, or simply that He paid for our sins so that we might not perish in hell. More than all of that, building on all of that, He has brought us in 
so that we are included with Christ. That we are now become members of His household. Citizens numbered among His people. To borrow from the book of Revelation, to have our names written in the book of life. So that we are alive, but we are joined together forever. Last point. We saw that God's gift of belonging gives us a home, a family, a purpose. We're being built together as a temple, a dwelling for His Holy Spirit. But notice this, the reality of belonging, not the theory, the reality of belonging is lived out in our committed covenant community. The reality of belonging is lived out in our committed covenant community. I'm not going to develop this today um, because we're going to consider it more fully in another sermon. So we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. But I do want to remind you as we close out our time that love is a person-to-person thing. It's not a theoretical abstraction. It's not something we just we talk about and we have this nebulous idea of love. Love has flesh. Love has hands and feet, faces. It's a reality to be lived out in a committed covenant community. As I mentioned before, nations and families comprise distinct groups of people who bear certain responsibilities toward one another, who agree on certain shared values, who protect and serve one another, and promote welfare and blessing for both individuals and the whole. You're sensible, reasonable people. Think about that for a while. You can see the similarity between citizens in a nation and members of a family. The connection is not wasted. This is what the Lord is calling us to. This is why the Bible regularly uses national and family language to convey the eternal truth of God's relationship to His people. It's why the interrelated concepts of marriage, sexuality, and family are never far from the conversation in the Bible about how God loves His people. When we get family wrong, we get God wrong. When we get God wrong, we get family wrong. We can also see how this applies nationally. I'm not trying to preach any kind of a political sermon right now, although there's a place for that. That's just not what we're doing. But understand, the dynamic is the same. Belonging to a specific defined group of people with rights, privileges, and obligations, part of the responsibility of being together, belonging. Neither of those things is easy. In case you haven't figured that out. If you have a family, you know. It's not easy. A whole lot better than not having one. Being a citizen, a responsible citizen, it's not easy. It takes effort. You get called for jury duty and you got to pay taxes, all these different things. Some places you get conscripted, drafted into military service. We don't do that here at this point. Some of you remember that. Some of you can't imagine it. 
But there is a duty that goes along with belonging. Always is, always has been, always will be. God uses those images to get us to see the connectedness of His people. It is to this end that Christ has given us each other to be His church. It's lived out in committed, covenant community. In other words, it's by choice, and it's not just according to our whims and fancies. Church life is a lot like marriage. The reason you have membership is because we're not here just to to date or shack up and get in and out when it's hard, take the good and then run away when it's tough. But just like marriage, we make a choice to be committed to one another for better or for worse, for richer or poorer, till death do us part. We stay and we fight and we love and we rejoice and we celebrate and we're in it together. That's what church is about. We'll come back to that in another sermon, but for today, just recognize and realize that the reality of belonging is lived out in our committed covenant community. As we think about this whole picture and we kind of wrap up this wonder of inclusion I hope that it's occurring to you I hope that that we're seeing that God's unspeakable love overcame our sin our rebellion against him our rejection of his sovereign rule in our lives but he didn't just save us he welcomed us he brought us into his forever family in christ so let's enter this new year with a renewed conviction and commitment to reflect the reality of christ and his unspeakable love through relationships within the wonder of that god-given family And as we contemplate the wonders of His love, may they fill us with an unspeakable joy that we spend the rest of our days and into all eternity celebrating together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we we study Your Word together, as we sing songs of worship to You together, Lord, I pray that it would be more than just something we do on the outside. But that you would knit together our hearts and our hands, our minds and our mouths. That we might live in unity as a reflection of the unity you have within yourself. Lord, let us reflect the reality of Christ through the relationships that you give us so that we might glorify you among a dark disordered world Father remind us as we go through the difficulties of this life that we are not alone we will never be alone that we are not only 
with you in a relationship that can never be undone. But we are joined together with your family in a home with a purpose. May your name be made great through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.